0: Uh, we've been in this sermon series called, I Wonder, where we have been talking about some of the really big questions that we have with our faith, and um, what, what's, what's interesting about this week is that the topic that Stan had selected, Stan selected this topic for this week when he planned it many weeks ago, it was not me, Stan did this, um, was what about the end times, right? Isn't that an uplifting topic at the end of a really heavy week, right? So I'm sitting there with my head in my hands this week of how am I gonna teach and preach about the end times in a way that is not thoroughly uh, confusing or depressing or frustrating for people who have admittedly have, have had a really hard week already. And so I decided to do what I do best and speak the love language of humorous PowerPoints because let's be honest, Um, the end times and the conversation they're in is a little bit crazy. It's one of the weirdest aspects of Christian theology. There are so many books that are really bad that you can read about this stuff. And I think if you teach about the end times and you don't have a little bit of fun with it, you're just not doing it right. So without any further ado, I now present to you the end of the world, the most mishandled topic in theology, a PowerPoint presentation. So today is going to be a little bit different. I'm already getting it. This is good. I hope you're ready to laugh. We're like, can we all just do this? Ah. <gasps> Um, I hope that you're ready to laugh. I hope that if I bring something up that makes you a little bit uncomfortable, maybe there is a speaker or author or an idea that you have uh, really enjoyed in the past, and I kind of poke a little bit of fun at that, please, please, please don't, let's not overreact and send me an angry email about how much you love Pat Robertson, because we're just not going to agree about that, but... um, Just understand that I'm handling this topic with a humor that I think is appropriate because otherwise it can just get really weird and really dark really fast. So when I talk about the end of the world, let's begin, I imagine any number of things come to mind for you. Maybe you think of a street corner street prophet holding a sign about the doomsday approaching, or maybe you think about one of the billions of wackadoo books in Barnes & Noble on the subject. Maybe you have this vague image of Jesus coming back and do, do people float in the air and how does that work and why are we all wearing white robes and what's that about? Or maybe you simply think that maybe an asteroid is just going to finally crash in and end it all. When we talk about the end of the world in the theological world, what we're talking about is a subject called eschatology. Whoops. Eschatology. Eschatology is a really big, unnecessarily hard-to-pronounce word, because theologians love those, that simply means what we believe about the last things. So this is an important subject of theology, and I want us to address two main questions today. What do we believe about the end of the world, right? We need to define what it is that we, and when I say we, I mean generally as the people who call themselves United Methodists, and then secondly, why is it important? Because maybe you're sitting here thinking, Scott, I really don't care too much about the end times. I don't think about it that often, and I don't think it's that important. And I hope to change your mind uh, to a degree this morning. So let's 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 dig in. When I talk about Christian approaches to end times, um, I bet you might have an image come to mind that looks something uh, like this. Not to startle you, right? This is a good Halloween picture, but it's this of like people floating up. There's this. There's like Jesus comes back and, and takes away a whole bunch of believers and and leave some other people behind, and this is what we call the rapture, right? Now, um, full disclosure, we United Methodists don't believe in this, so we're going to go down this rabbit trail for a second because this is really popular culture American theology that I think a lot of folks believe is just general Christian theology, and it's not, and it's important to understand the ins and outs of of where this can take us. So, the rapture is this concept, this theological concept that was made famous most recently in a book series called Left Behind. If you ever have owned or read or, or heard about the Left Behind series, raise your hand. Yeah? Okay, see? So this is a generally popular culture approach to how the world is going to end from a Christian perspective. And it was made famous in a subsequent movie series put out by Kirk Cameron. right? And then it was made hilarious by Nicolas Cage. And I just think any movie series that locks Nicolas Cage in, the man Who's responsible for every direct to DVD movie you've never seen, including most recently, Kill Chain, Running with the Devil, A Score to Settle, Between Worlds, 211, Mandy, The Humanity Bureau, Mom and Dad, Inconceivable, Vengeance, Arsenal, Army of One, Dog Eat Dog, Trust, Pay the Ghost, The Runner, Dying in the Light, Outcast, Rage, Frozen Ground, and Ghost Rider 2, Spirit of Vengeance, right? I guarantee you nobody in the room has seen any of these. Actually, I've seen one of these. I'm not going to tell you which one. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you. Some of these might be made up. You don't know because you haven't seen them, right? (laughs) Nicolas Cage is single-handedly keeping Redbox in business, I'm pretty sure. So, I'm sorry, back to the discussion at hand. Clearly, if, if, if your concept is so good to get Nicolas Cage on board for the movie version, it's got to be something to it, right? So where did the rapture concept come from, though? Because it was not developed by the Left Behind book series. It actually dates back to a couple of Puritan preachers named... Um, Increase Mather. Yes, his name was Increase Mather. He's very Look at how Puritan he is. And his son, Cotton Mather. They were two Puritan preachers uh, who developed this theology. And then it didn't really catch a lot of uh, wind until a uh, Irish Bible teacher named John Nelson Darby popularized uh, this concept in the 1800s. Now, a fun side note, increase in, oh, they they're very serious gentlemen, right? Look at how intelligent and serious. They demand their ideas be taken seriously. Increase in Cotton Mather, uh, funny side note, uh, they were Puritan preachers who were also very much responsible for the Salem witch trials, but let's just ignore that for this morning, right? Um, Pay no attention to the fact that that was also what they're famous for. These guys uh, developed and popularized this rapture concept until it has become oh so Nicolas Cage famous, but the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is the rapture biblical, right? Is the rapture biblical? Uh, and the answer is kind of. It's kind of biblical. There's this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17 that says this. What we are saying, this is um, a letter being written to a church, what we are saying is a message from the Lord. We who are alive and still around at the Lord's coming definitely won't go ahead of those who have died. This is because the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the signal of a shout by the head angel and a blast on God's trumpet." First, those who are dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are living and still around will be taken up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. That way we will always be with the Lord. Now, blink and you'll miss it. There's this phrase, taken up together, and it comes from uh, the Greek word harpagisamatha, which means to be taken away rather suddenly. It has this connotation of being a sudden taken away. And that Greek word ends up being translated into to a Latin word that ends up being translated into a medieval Latin word that ends up being translated into a French uh, medieval word that ends up sounding like the word rapture. And that's where we get the word rapture and essentially the concept from uh, that, that three word English statement, that one Greek word becomes what we understand to be the rapture. Now those who are proponents of the rapture will say, well no, 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 there's other parts of the Bible that talk about the rapture. And one passage they'll point to a lot is Matthew 24 verses 27 through 41. Where it says this, as it was in the time of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the human one. In those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. They didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. The coming of the human one, meaning the second coming of Jesus, will be like that. At that time, there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Now, never mind the fact that this passage comes in a larger context. Context of the Gospel of Matthew. Never mind the fact that Jesus could have been talking about being taken away and left behind in a figurative sense. Never mind the fact that Jesus may have been talking about the ways in which people come to faith in the time that he was actually present on earth. No, 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 no. Because uh, if we're taking the Bible literally, it says right. Th- you see it right. It says right there, one's gonna be taken, one's gonna be left behind. So now you see the threads that are connected to say, well, this is clearly all about the rapture. Now here's where it gets really interesting. The world doesn't end with the rapture. No, 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 no. You might have noticed there's these two other phrases, the, two, the, the people that are left. There's this man that's left, a woman that's left, and then the natural question becomes left for what, right? And this is where it gets really dicey. The great tribulation. That's what people are left behind for uh, in the rapture. It, this was also made into an awesome movie, this time starring Gary Busey because they just get the best people, right? So... <laughs> The tribulation period is this seven-year, literal, seven, you're going to hear the word literal a lot, a literal seven-year period that follows the rapture in this theology uh, where it is uh, an incredibly difficult season for everybody who's left behind. There's war, there's famine, there's pestilence, there's disease. And the way they arrive at this seven-year period concept is by looking at two different prophecies one from the old testament book of daniel the other from the very last book of the bible revelation book of daniel there's a prophecy that references a time times and half a time, and that means three and a half years. It does. And then the Revelation prophecy, there's a quote, uh, there's a reference to a thousand two hundred and three score days period, or forty two months. And you know, a prophetic month averages about thirty days. And so twelve sixty divided by thirty is about forty two months, which is about three and a half years. Three and a half plus three and a half equals seven. And you might be saying, Scott, how, why did they pick these two prophecies, Scott? How do they know what time times and half a time means? And you might be saying, Scott, how do they know that the pr- prophetic month is thirty days? And and Scott. Who decides all this stuff? And it's just math, okay? It's just math, so just stop asking questions. It's seven years. Do you want to see the equation? I put it on the screen. That's the equation. That's how we get there. (laughs) 3.5 plus 3.5 is seven. It's math, kids. Okay, so after the seven-year tribulation... There's the second coming. Now this is actually pretty rad, right? Like Google image the second coming and you get super awesome pictures like this. There's like rainbows and Jesus is evidently uh, leading a big old band full of trumpeting angels all clothed in white robes and people are raising out of the grave and there's a generic big city in the background that's uh, wondering what's going on um, because it would have made more sense for Jesus to put this show on for them maybe, but no, he's just in front of these random books Bushes and rocks, But anyways, it's a pretty cool, uh, this is like the good thing. This is what we're all pumped about. Jesus comes back in the second coming, and he ushers in something called the millennium, okay? The millennium is this thousand-year period where Jesus and the church reign in full control, and, and, and all of God's love and grace and mercy are just raining, 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 and everything is awesome, and sunshine and gold and rainbows. And you might say, Scott, that thousand-year period, is that symbolic or literal? And I want you to look at these guys again and ask yourself that question again and realize that they mean super literal right it's a thousand year millennium don't Question it down to the nanosecond, thousand years because the Bible says thousand years, and at the end of this thousand-year period of Jesus and the Church reigning is the last judgment. This is where God essentially stands at the back door and says, "Are you in or are you out? Are you in or are you out?" Except we're the dog, and heaven is the house, and the backyard is hell. Right? So that's the last judgment, and what I've just described to you is a theological concept called dispensational premillennialism. Say that five times fast. This is a little graphical representation there's the cross there's that sort of space we're right we're in this space right here one day there'll be a rapture seven year tribulation second coming thousand year millennium last judgment and then you know eternity after that this is just one understanding of the end times. This is the most popularized in movies and in books and in general American culture, but this is just one, and it has a really complicated name that I have a hard time pronouncing, so let's look at the other options as well. There's also post-tribulational premillennialism. This one essentially eliminates the rapture and says that we'll all go through tribulation period because these guys are pessimists, I guess. We're all going to be subjected to the disease and the war and the pestilence and the famine, and then Jesus will come back usher in the millennium and then we'll have a last judgment. Then there's also post-millennialism. This was really popular in the 19 or in the 1800s, early 1900s and this idea was that tribulation actually occurred right after the crucifixion, ended with the falling of the Jewish temple in the year 70 and we've been living in a symbolic millennial period ever since where everything's been getting better and better and better and Christian ethics and the church have been growing and influence more and more and more. But then these two things called the world wars happened in the early 1900s hundreds, and people realize maybe things aren't always getting better. And then so this concept has faded away. Now, if I were to ask you in the Methodist church, what do you think we believe of these three I've presented? Dispensational premillennialism, post-tribulational premillennialism, or post-millennialism? Anybody say A. Big hand for A. Anybody say B. Big hand for B. Anybody say C. Big hand for C. The correct answer is D. None of the above. I've just punked you. Boom. Gotcha. All right. So... We in the Methodist Church don't really officially subscribe to any official theology around the end times. The best way you could describe our belief is called amillennialism. And for the record, this is the general approach of the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, most Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopalians, a lot of Baptists, right? This is the one that we don't talk about a lot because, honestly, there's not a whole lot to talk about. And that's why you may be going, "Uh, wait, so we don't believe in the rapture and all that stuff. Not really. We don't concern ourselves too much. Amillennialism basically says after Jesus, we've been living in this kind of symbolic millennium. We we recognize the Bible talks about this millennium period. We don't think it's literal. We understand that some things are improving and some things are breaking, but overall the arc is bending towards justice and righteousness. And we also believe that one day Jesus is going to come back and that there will be a final judgment. Uh, We believe in in those prophecies as well. Really, what our beliefs boil down to is the Apostles' Creed. Um, You can pick and choose any number of scriptures in the Bible to support any number of wild theories about how everything is going to turn out. But we rely on the wisdom and the faith of hundreds of years of church fathers and mothers who discerned. A general theology for the church and arrived at this in in one portion of the apostles creed and so we kind of lean upon their understanding in this because guess what people were, were really really smart in the time of jesus just like they're smart today and the apostles creed says jesus ascended into heaven is seated at the right hand of the father and will come again to judge the living and the dead and that's pretty much what we believe about the end of the world we, we don't really concern ourselves with the rapture. We're not too concerned about the season of tribulation. We just understand the world is broken, that it, we're working to make it better, that the church is Christ's body here on earth. We're called to do works of righteousness and mercy, and we definitely believe Jesus is going to come back. We believe the world's going to be transformed. We just don't concern ourselves with the itty-bitty details of exactly how that's all going to play out. Are y'all still with me? So, that's what we believe, right? Right? That's what we believe. And it may not be the answer that you thought you were going to get this morning. I want to now address why it matters. What we believe about the end of things really matters, especially, I believe, as Christians and as the church living in the present day. I think we can make two really big mistakes when it comes to uh, thinking about, uh, discussing, or even acting acting out our beliefs on the end times. The first mistake that I think we can make is obsession. Right, it can be really easy to get obsessed about how the world's going to end. It it, it triggers the fear-based part of our brain, right? And we want to make sure that everything is squared away. We want to make sure that we're good, so that if the rapture does come, that we get you know sucked up into heaven, and we're not left with the chumps who have to go through the tribulation, right? We want to make sure that when the last judgment comes, that we get to go into the house, and we're not stuck in the backyard, right? And, and so it can be really easy to then go, wait, well, I got to figure out how this works because I don't want to be surprised. I I don't want Jesus to show up and me not be. Ready. And before long, as you start connecting dots and you're reading books and you're trying to figure out the ins and outs of all the details, you start to look like a conspiracy theorist, right? And people stop inviting you over to dinner parties because you won't stop talking about your latest theory about the end times. Don't be this person. Don't be this person. It'll drive you nuts. Not only that, even though, uh, there's, uh, <coughs> even though there's a, uh, well, well, anyways, <coughs> pardon me. There are so many books that have been written about the end times. There are so many people who are convinced they've got it all figured out. Go to Barnes and Noble, go on Amazon. You can't buy them all. You can't read them all. This is an exhausted area of study. And never mind the fact that Jesus literally told us not to worry about it, right? Not to worry about it in the sense of like just do whatever you want. But he said, don't get stressed out about the details. Nobody knows when that day or hour will come. Not the heavenly angels and not the sun. Only the Father knows, right? Um, Oh, thank you so much. Dave, you're a saint. Applause for Dave. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. He was sick and tired of listening to my nasty voice. That's what that was. So this is a verse that literally is the very line before that. Remember the passage about the one person being taken, one being left behind? Jesus literally says that right here, right before he says the stuff about people being taken. He says to us, don't stress out about the details. You're never going to figure it out, which of course, uh, wackadoo biblical literalists will say challenge accepted, right? And, And you'll get people that will try to predict over and over, no matter how many times they get it wrong. And after consulting with a very scholarly source on the internet, I discovered that in 1900s, there were 67 public predictions of the precise date of the end times. 67 times in the 1900s alone, people said, I finally figured it out, right? And here are a few of my favorites. Number one, my buddy Pat Robertson. Oh, Pat, Pat, Pat. On a 1980 uh, edition of his 700 Club TV show, he looked at the camera and he said, I guarantee you by the end of 1982, there is going to be a judgment on the world. It's still on TV. So, you know, uh, sometimes we miss out, Pat. Sorry about that. There's this guy, um, (laughs) which, I mean, I'm like, Who is listening to this guy? Uh, Harold Camping, he predicted that the world was going to end on the following dates. September 6th, 1994, didn't work out. September 29th, 1994, didn't work out. October 2nd, 1994, he decided to take a breather, May 21st, 2011, and then again on October 21st, 2011. And then this is my absolute favorite. Back in the 1800s, there was this guy named William Miller. He was a lay Baptist uh, preacher, and uh, he developed this sort of cult following called the Millerites, because he had figured out once and for all when Jesus was coming back. And it was going to be on October 22nd, 1844. This was the day that Jesus was coming back. And so people got ready. He had all these followers. They were ready. They went to the graveyards to be there with their resurrected family members. Uh, They went to be with their friends and family. And then when it came and passed and Jesus didn't come back, it became known as, in history, on Wikipedia, forever, I kid you not, the Great Disappointment. and that is the funniest Christian history fact I've ever learned, and I'm so glad I was assigned this sermon. This is fantastic. The Great Disappointment, right? And you thought you screwed up in your life. He's not, There's a page on Wikipedia called The Great Disappointment, and this guy's face is on it. That's really sad and also kind of funny. So, it is funny, and, and we can laugh at people like Harold Camping or the Millerites for thinking they got it right and for being very wrong. Um, But being obsessed with the end times can also be very unfunny as well. Uh, There are figures throughout history who have used this and used the the fear and paranoia that it instills in people to do horrendous, horrible things. Charles Manson thought he understood what the end times were going to look like. He predicted a race war was going to be the apocalypse of the earth, and we all know what happened with the Manson family. Marshall Applewhite, he led the Heaven's Gate cult. He was convinced that the Haley-Bopp comet coincided with the end times, and he led a, 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 a mass suicide of his cult followers. And then Shoko Asahara led the Aum Shinriko, a, a Japanese doomsday cult that was responsible for a 1995 Tokyo sarin gas attack in their subway system. And, and so the point that I want to make here is that it, it's funny and it's not. Being obsessed, being overly obsessed with how it's all going to end, it leads us into this weird, dark, crazy underbelly of theology that does not give light to our lives or the lives of people around us. So just be careful, be careful, because it's okay to have questions, but we got to be okay having some of our questions unanswered and learning to live in that space. The second mistake we can make is what I would call fatalism. The world's gonna end one day. I don't know what it's gonna look like, or or you know, it just it's just gonna you know everything's gonna be you know burned up, or an asteroid's gonna strike. So who cares, right? the who cares approach to the end of the world. Now, there's a pastor that I'm not a big fan of named Mark Driscoll because he's just mean and angry and I just don't I don't like what he has to say. Now, one time he was given a talk at a conference and he said this quote that got a lot of airplay and people, you know, went up in arms over it. He said if you drive a minivan, you're a mini man. And like, okay, he was trying to be funny. And like at the same time, I'm like, have you ever driven a minivan because We just rented one for a road trip from Kansas City back to Dallas, and there are 18,000 cup holders in minivans these days. And they are like rocket ships, and I love them, and I cannot wait to drive one one day. Like, minivans are awesome. Y'all don't even, y'all probably do realize I'm just new to the club, so I'm evangelizing minivans. Now, even though this is what people talked about, Uh, the larger talk that he was giving was about the end of the world. And the reason he said this is he was trying to make a point about lack of care for the environment. He was trying to say he drives an SUV and he doesn't think twice about it, because in the end, God's just going to burn up the world anyways, right? He has this theology that many Christians share, that when the end of times comes, well, whatever we have here, we're going to be sucked away from, and then God's just going to, you know, put it in a furnace and build a bright, brand new golden earth, and that's what we're going to live on. so if that's what you believe, who really cares about bees or trees or driving an SUV and that all rhymed and I did not mean to and I just realized I was doing that right then. So I think that it's it's an unfortunate mistake to have this view of the end of the world that says my actions here on earth don't matter and the world that I live in doesn't matter. Because in the end, God's just going to burn it up and, or blow it up and build a new one anyways. And, and, I, and I, I say that because I believe this, that what we believe about the end changes what we do with the now. This is why what we believe about end times matters. This is why I think the Apostles' Creed is an important uh, foundation of the church. It's important to remind ourselves that we are Christ's body here on earth, that, that Jesus will be coming back, that, that we will be held to account for, for how we steward this earth that is ours and how we steward the people that are within it. What we believe about the end changes what we do with the now. And so here's what we know. I, to, I want to bring us out of the clouds and out of the ludicrous PowerPoint I've prepared for you and ground us in a little bit of reality to close today. Because I know when we talk about end times, it can leave your head kind of spinning, and you go, what do we do with this? So here's, here's what we know. Number one, we know that Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when. We don't know when, and we never will. But we do know that Jesus is coming back. Number two, we know that we're the church, but we also know that we're not perfect. Everything is not always getting better all of the time. It takes constant awareness and constant work on the part of the church to reform itself and to help transform the world around it. We know that God will reign in the end and everything will be transformed. I don't want to live in a world where evil is allowed to exist. I want a God who comes back and transforms this place that we live in into a good and righteous and perfect holy vision of what creation was meant to be. And I want God to transform me and you as well. I want to be the perfected vision that God has for me as well. And the last thing we, we know is we can wonder about the future, but we can find our purpose in the present. Don't let these rabbit trails around the end times, I know so many of you are gonna hop on Wikipedia this afternoon to look up all the stuff that I have just presented to you. And it is, there are rabbit trails. You can do a deep dive on this stuff, but don't let it detach you from the work that God has set before you in this life, in this moment. One reason I'm a Methodist, there's a lot of reasons, but one reason I'm a Methodist is I really value the theology of John Wesley. He was the guy that founded Methodism. And he was crazy intelligent, and he could do the the in-the-clouds theology conversation all day, every day. But he was grounded in his life in the realities of what it meant to be the church and what it meant to be a Jesus follower. And he knew that faith was meaningless if it was, if it was devoid of any sort of acts of mercy and righteousness for our community, for our neighbors, and even for ourselves. And so Wesley developed these three rules that he lived his life by, and I think they were grounding rules, especially when we begin to consider these really far-off concepts like how the world's going to end. And I think they're rules that we could live by and could be helpful as we go from this place today. Wesley said, first, do no harm. First, do no harm. And then he said, do good. And lastly, he said, stay in love with God. Do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with God. I don't know how the world's going to end. I have a vague vision and understanding based upon the wisdom of leaders far before me. But here's what I do know. If we as the church and as we as individual Christ followers can do no harm, can do good, and can stay in love with God, then I think that ending is going to look pretty awesome. Do you? Three simple rules. Stay grounded. Pull your head out of the clouds at times and remember that God has you here in this moment for a purpose. Don't miss it. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We do give you thanks for a really difficult topic. And we give you thanks for PowerPoint slides that help us out in a tough spot. God, as we consider how everything will come to an end, we we begin by admitting that we don't know. We have a vague understanding. We have a broad brush image of Jesus returning and righteousness reigning, and your goodness and mercy descending. But the details are fuzzy. And God, let us be okay with that. Let us not be distracted by trying to figure out the inner workings of your ways or your universal plans. But God, call our attention back to the here and now. To trust that one day when our creation is perfected in your love, when we are perfected in your love, you won't ask us hey, did you figure me out? But you might ask us how we treated ourselves how we cared for our families and for our neighbors and for our friends how we cared for the outsider and the enemy how we stewarded all of creation. And so God, we leave this morning maybe a little confused, maybe with a little bit of a chuckle. But God, I hope we can leave grounded in the simplicity and the reality of John Wesley's view of following after Jesus. God, call us back to three simple rules that we could do no harm and that we could do good and that we could stay in love with you for today for tomorrow and for eternity